0: Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Community. My name is Tim. Um, I get the, have the joys of being able to serve as one of the pastors here. So why don't I pray for us um, this morning? What an interesting story. Um, and there's a lot there, so we need some help. So let me pray as we jump into John 3 in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. God, you know I need this sermon and this text and this story more than anyone in this room. So God, as I, I preach and, and you preach to me... Um, I pray that others here would open their hearts and hear and listen, that we all would love Jesus more, that we would serve him, and that we would place our confidence and our hope in him and him alone. I ask these things in his name, Jesus' name, amen. Well, the greatest obstacle to Jesus is religion. And I realize I may say that, and you look at me and think, Tim, you're a pastor. You're the most religious person in the room. And I know, that's why when I read the Gospels, actually, I'm, I'm scared sometimes. Because the people most like me in the Gospels were the ones who most ardently opposed Jesus in his ministry. That the ones who were supposed to teach and know and study God's word opposed Jesus. Those who were in charge of shepherding and leading God's people were the most ardent opposition to him. That scares me when I read that. And when I read this conversation with Nicodemus, it makes me nervous. Because I see that the greatest obstacle to Jesus is religion. Or you may hear that and you say, amen, down with religion. Right? It's become sort of a catchphrase these days. And even sometimes in the church, I've, I've sat through sermons that said, death to religion or losing my religion. It's become sort of a buzz phrase. And yet I often find the people who say that sort of thing or, or say, good, down with religion, often have in themselves the very problem they see in religious people. The same thing hindering religious to Jesus are hindering them also. And so the last couple of weeks now, we've looked at Jesus encountering different sorts of people. They, he's encountered the skeptic. He's, uh, last week, we looked at him encountering the satisfied. In the weeks to come, he'll, he'll look, encounter the, the, the social outcast and the relativist. But today, you might notice his response to the religious is fundamentally different. In every other response, there will be some patience and kindness towards that person, but not here. Here, Jesus is terse. He's direct. He pushes back. And there's even a bit of an argument between Jesus and Nicodemus. Because Jesus knows the greatest obstacle to himself is religion. And that comes out loud and clear in this story. And so as we dive into John 3, we'll we'll look at sort of why religion is an obstacle to Jesus What the obstacle in the center of religion is, and and thirdly, how we can be free of religion. So what, or why religion's an obstacle, what the obstacle is, and finally, how we can be free. If you notice, the conversation sort of begins in a seemingly friendly place, right? Nicodemus comes to Jesus, him and the religious leaders have, have heard about Jesus, they've especially heard about the miracle of water becoming wine, they want to know more about that maybe in particular, um, and so he comes and he's, he's interested and he's, he's open. And here's what he says He says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Nicodemus is coming to Jesus saying, Who are you? Tell us more. We, we've seen enough. We know you're something special. Give me more. But did you see Jesus' response? He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you catch what's happening in their exchange. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, we're seeing really great things. And Jesus responds, you're actually not seeing anything. You're blind. And unless you're born again, you can't see anything of who I am and what I'm doing. Right? It's terse. I mean, he pushes back right away. This isn't a, a kind Response. He's trying to, to egg Nicodemus into a different place. That he says to Nicodemus, "Listen, you can't change. You're blind, and you need my help." And that really, I think, as we'll see in the, the conversation, offends Nicodemus. It probably should. It should offend me and you if we really hear what's going on here. Because Nicodemus would have been the most moral, up, morally upstanding person. Probably any of us would I would would have known. I mean, he was certainly better. A follower of God than any of us are. He would have read his Bible far more often than we did. He would have prayed far more often than any of us pray. He would most likely have given away more of his income than any of us give away. He was generous, he was open-hearted. He was tolerant and, 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 and open to what Jesus, this new teacher, was saying. He's diligent and moral. He's a good man. Now think of the most moral upstanding person you can think of. right? And hopefully it's not yourself, hopefully it's someone else. Right? But think of that person. That's who's coming to Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and says, I can't help you. You're a lost cause. You can't see anything. And that should, if we hear what's going on, offend us. But that's the first glance. If you, if you think deeper about what's happening here, is what's going on is, is Nicodemus is, is a religious teacher, which means his job is to study the Bible. He prays. He leads worship for others Right? I mean, he, he, he's a diligent knower of God, or at least he's supposed to be. And yet, what, what's happening in the scene? Right? The one that has spent his life reading this book and praying to God and worshiping God is sitting right across from the one who wrote this book, the one he worshiped, the one he prayed to. And he has no idea. He's blind. The, the God he was supposed to know is sitting next to him, and all he sees is a teacher. Because religion blinds us. It's an obstacle to us because it blinds us. And then ultimately, Nicodemus' is training, his religion, his efforts aren't enabling him to see Jesus. They're preventing him from seeing Jesus. And we see that bear out in the conversation. And it raises the question, okay, well, why does this happen? Why does religion so often blind us? And and I think if I was to define what religion is, I would say religion is about trusting a practice and not a person. That a religious person thinks, because I, I do something, I am something. Because I perform, I am something. And Jesus is pushing back against that piece of Nicodemus. And the reality is, if that's true, if that's what religion is, that you're trusting practices, or that because you do something, you are something, then you don't even have to be religious to be religious. You can be religious through your politics, whether you're liberal or conservative. You vote a certain way, and all those who don't vote your way, you're morally and vastly superior to them. Or it could be your work ethic. You get your job done, and if the other people can't do their jobs, well, you're vastly superior to them, because you work harder, and you try harder at it. Or it could be your parenting, right? That You parent the right way, and all those other parents who do it the other way, you're just vastly superior to them, and you just thank God every day that your kids didn't land in their home. (laughs) Or you can be religious by being religious, by keeping all the rules, by reading your Bible and praying and and, and worshiping in the right way. And then you look at all the people who don't do it the way that you do it, and you think, oh, I'm glad I'm not them. I figured this thing out. I'm superior. At the center of religion is the feeling of superiority to others. And any time or any moment when you have felt superior to others, it's a sign you're religious. And it's a sign there's an obstacle between you and Jesus, and you're not going to get to him until you remove it. That's why religion blinds us. We think that we just need some improvement. We just need to, to get better at what we're doing. We just, we just need a little help. And, th- and that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I can't help you with. I can't make you better. You're a lost cause. I, I, I can't help you in, in where you're at. I can't make you better, but I can make you new. That's Jesus' whole point to Nicodemus. And the reality is religion continually pushes you on thinking that you can make yourself better. And what Jesus is saying is until you come the mo- to the moment where you realize the only way you'll ever be what you were meant to be is to leave every, all of your, your doings behind, your workings behind, and come to Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He has to do, and Nicodemus is offended. Ultimately, religion is anything that could make you feel superior to others. But here's the catch. Because Nicodemus really is superior to others. He's really moral. As I said, he's a a diligent guy. He's following after God as best he can. And so when Jesus says to him, you you have to be born again, it offends him. It should offend us. Because Jesus looks at every single one of us And says, I can't do anything with you. I have no advice. You have to start over. You have to be born again. And I think C.S. Lewis really captured this well. This this idea of redemption that Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes about this change that Jesus offers all of us. He writes, for mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now... And will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better men and women of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it's got its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped. And thus beat the horse At at its own game. I love that Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, "Help me jump fences." And Jesus says, "Listen, I can't help you that, but but I can help you fly." And he means that for you. He means that for me. He means not just to make us better, but to make us into his sons and his daughters, into new creatures altogether. He offers that and nothing less, and that's why he looks at Nicodemus and says, I can't help you. You have to be born again. So if you're like me, this raises tension. This raises a question in my heart. How can I know I've done this? How can I know I've been, I'm not approaching Jesus as Nicodemus did, as a religious person? And I would answer that question with with another question that that may seem to come out of nowhere. It's this, it's how well do you share your faith with others? I think that's a good indication of how you're relating to Jesus, whether you're being religious and approaching him like Nicodemus or in a fundamentally new way. That Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's interested, but he's interested for advice and not for what Jesus is claiming for himself as Messiah. That Jesus wants a religious advisor. And I think if if we relate to Jesus in that way, as someone with good moral advice to make us better people, we'll never share him with anyone because who wants to share a religious advisor with other people? I don't. It's boring. It's it's strange. But if, if, if we have been born again, if we've gone through what Jesus is saying, he's calling us and offering to us, that if we're being turned into a winged creature, something that will fly and soar and live into everything God made us to be, if he's writing new stories on our lives, we will tell that to others. Naturally, in the flow of conversation, Jesus will come up. And I don't mean by that, that 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 means you grab a box, you go down to the plaza, you stand on it, and you, you preach to people that way. Right? It doesn't mean you go up to every stranger you know, and you, you share the gospel, and, and you try to baptize them there on the spot. But it does mean that if there are never moments when what Jesus has done for you enters into conversation with others, it's a sign you may not be doing much. He may be coming as your religious advisor and he's giving you good advice, but he's not turning you in to what he's offering you, the full breadth of the salvation that he comes with. So that's why religion blinds us. We, it's or why religion is an obstacle. It blinds us. Um, but it raises the question, okay, well, what is the obstacle at the heart of religion? If you notice in verse four, G, or Nicodemus responds to Jesus' statement. Jesus says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus has a, just one of the strangest verses to me in, in all the Bible. Um, here's what Nicodemus says. It says Nicodemus said to him, "How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I have you know if you read that and if you've ever read that and thought Nicodemus must have been really dumb, right? But but he's a, he's a teacher. I mean, Jesus later on refers to him as the teacher of Israel. That may have been some sort of title for his profession or what his teaching was. He was a smart guy. But yet he looks at Jesus and says, "Jesus, I, I can't be born again because I don't I don't know if you know this, but I can't climb back into my mom's womb." That's what he says. Is he is he dumb or what? What's going on here? Well, I think what helps is the the two metaphors that Jesus draws out to further explain what he means by born again. In verse, um, verses six and seven, he goes to this being born of the water or born of the water and the spirits. And what I think he's referring to there for Nicodemus is an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel 36, where there God, through the prophet Ezekiel, um, said this. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. Born of water and spirit, it means... It's a new heart. A new spirit in you. cleansed from everything you've done wrong. And Jesus is saying, that's what I mean. But he pushes further. He uses another more a metaphor, which is, is the wind. And I love this. He, in verse 8, he says, okay, so you, you're, being born, it's like being born in water and spirit. It's also like the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, how in the world are those two metaphors a response to Jesus's, or to Nicodemus' really confused question? Well, it's because Jesus says to Nicodemus, right, you have to be born again. And immediately Nicodemus starts thinking, what do I have to do? I can't climb back into my mom's womb, so tell me what to do, Jesus. And then Jesus tells him two things he absolutely can't do. He can't give himself a new heart. He can't give himself a new spirit. And he certainly can't control the wind, That Jesus is saying, listen, Nicodemus, you're coming to me interested, but there's an obstacle between me and you, and that's that you're not totally dependent on me, on God. That that's the obstacle at the heart of religion for all of us, is that we don't come to God totally dependent. We think we can do it. We're sufficient. And Jesus is saying, if that's your thinking, I can't help you. And I think that shows up in our lives, right? One way is, is a failure to pray, except for when our life is falling apart. Right When our lives fall apart, then we know we're not dependent. Right, This thing can unravel quickly. We get that. But are we people of prayer even when life's going really well? Or it shows up when we, we know a commandment. We know Jesus has asked us to do something and we refuse to do it. Because we're convinced, even though he might have said that, we still know better. We don't come with empty hands. We come thinking we have ourselves together enough that he can improve us. And Jesus is saying, that's not what salvation is. It's, it's like the wind. It blows. And you see its effects, but you don't know where it comes from. You can't control it. That no one has studied their way into the kingdom. No one's prayed their way into the kingdom. No one has changed their life and cleaned up their act enough to come into the kingdom. In fact, I'm guessing a lot of your own stories of salvation are really boring and uninteresting, like mine, at least to you, unless you're not religious. And then it's, it's pretty cool what God does. Now, I would love to tell you what my own, one of the biggest moments of my own um, coming to faith was, but I know you'll think it's lame. So uh, part of me doesn't want to tell you, but I'm, I'm going to tell you anyway. In ninth grade class, I had um, a geometry teacher named Mrs. Ragsdale. And Mrs. Ragsdale had a rule in class, which was, if she said a cuss word, curse word, we as students could say whatever curse word she said. Now, as a ninth grade student, this was quite enticing. And we tried to get her to say cuss words, um, which we probably would have done anyway, right? Um, and, and one day, she finally, a few weeks into to the first semester, she said a cuss word, which meant we, as ninth grade male students, got to curse in math class as much as we wanted. And if there was ever a place where curse words were necessary, it's math class, Right? And so we used the word as much as we could, as often as we could, in as many contexts as we could, and we lived it up. But there was one person in that class who didn't. Her name was Julie. Julie went to the church that I went to. I knew she was a Christian, and she was one of the few people in that class that didn't curse like a sailor. She didn't judge us, didn't thumb her nose at us, didn't look down on us, but she just never engaged and whereas my greatest joy during my freshman year was cursing in geometry class I knew she found a joy in a far different place and I wanted that joy so yeah I'm a I'm a Christian largely because some random freshman girl refused to curse in geometry class and if you're religious you think that's lame and that's okay but I hold to John 3 8, which is Spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You can be sitting in geometry class, and God decides wind's blowing there, and suddenly you're a Christian. And if that's true, if that's true, students, living in high school as Christians or middle school, it's hard, right? But but stay, af- stay after following Jesus. Be faithful to him. You don't, you don't know the impact you may be having of the students around you. Julie had no idea. She didn't go into class thinking, if I just don't cuss today, Tim might become a Christian. No. She just lived Jesus, followed Jesus as best she could, and God blew his wind through her life onto me. It also means parents, those of you that that, that want to share your faith with your kids first, right? It's one thing we do every week is we... We print off the Kid Connect, and, and there's a couple questions there for you to engage your kids in the sermon and what happened here on Sunday. And I just encourage you, do that. Who knows what kind of impact you may have through that conversation. The, the earlier when I said, you know, share your faith, and that's a sign of whether or not you're coming to Jesus as religious. I'm sure many of you thought, well, neighbors and, and, and friends far out, but, but did you think of your own kids? Today, you may, you may pull out those questions and ask them, and it may seem like total lame conversation, no good whatsoever, and who knows? The way God might blow his wind through doing that Sunday after Sunday, engaging your kids, asking them questions. And someday, 10 years from now, they, they may say, do you remember that time we talked about this on the way home from church? And you'll say, no, I don't at all. It's because God's wind blew. And you provided a moment for that to happen. That's why we should be people who are always engaging others. To share our faith I think one reason I hesitate to share my faith is because I want the moment to be right I want to say the right thing I want to give the right objection to or right answer to whatever objection was raised and yet this text challenges us in that it says yes those things those things are important I don't want to disregard those but are you just open to God moving in whatever way and just trusting what little statement you might make or what little moment you might share with someone else God would use that beyond what you would hope for gives us a freedom, doesn't it? Not to force it, but to just trust God to blow his wind, to bring his water and spirit and cleanse people in his way and not mine. So we need to be free of religion because it blinds us. The reason it blinds us is because we often don't come to him totally dependent. And finally, how can we be free of religion? How can we get away from this? I think Nicodemus has begun to track with Jesus He gets that Jesus is telling him the only way that he's going to be saved, the only way he can come is is not because of anything Nicodemus is going to do. And so it's almost in verse 9 like Nicodemus throws up his hands and just says, how can these things be? Jesus, help me. I'm not tracking with you. And Jesus responds with a couple things. He first rebukes Nicodemus because he says, listen, Nicodemus, you should have seen this. This was in the Old Testament. This isn't something new. This isn't something fresh. I'm not making something up here. It was in the Old Testament, right? It was in, in Ezekiel. We read that. But then it's in another place, and he goes to this strange story in Numbers 21 to explain to Nicodemus what he's missed from the Old Testament. It's a really strange story. God had rescued his people from, Israel, or from Egypt. He pulled them into the, the wilderness, and there, there wasn't much food, so he miraculously provided this food for these people. And they ate the same food for a long time and a long time, and finally, they just get tired of it. And they go to Moses, and they say, Moses, we're tired of this worthless food God is giving us. Literally, they use the word worthless, which is never a good idea to use in, in respect to God. It's not a good place to go. So, Moses obviously, the complaint gets to God. Um, he hears it and, and he decides he's going to judge his people. And he chooses to judge them by, by sending snakes into the camp. In so many that, that many of the Israelites are actually bitten, and, and so many are bitten that some actually die. So the people now feel bad. They, they repent. They go to Moses. They say, save us from these snakes. Help us. And God says, I will help. But I'm not taking the snakes out of the, out of the camp. Instead, what I want you to do, is I want you to take a pole. I want you to put a bronze serpent on that pole. And I want you to, to put the pole in the camp. And if anybody gets bitten, they're to go and look at that tree. They're to, they're to go look at that pole, that snake, and they'll live. The Bible's a strange book, isn't it? <laughs> and yet Jesus says, Nicodemus, it was right there for you. Because as, the, as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so also I will be lifted up. And whoever look at me, whoever looks at me, will have eternal life. That's the only way to be free of religion, is to look at the tree. And what a a horrible thing to ask a religious person to do. Because basically, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, listen, you have to acknowledge you're dead and you're dying and you will end if you don't come and look at me. There's nothing you can do, nothing you can offer. Whether we just sang a hymn a a while ago that I I hope as you were singing it, the words hit you. I hope you didn't just sing through them because they're words that should have potentially offended you and you missed them. The hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. But who wants to say about themselves that they're helpless, that they have nothing, that they're foul? naked, that apart from Jesus, I'm dead. No one wants to sing that. And yet Jesus looks at Nicodemus, and he looks at all of us, and he says, the only way you'll have life is to look at me on the tree. That's it. And in one sense, it's so simple, right? Just look at the tree. Put your faith there. And yet in another, it means saying, I'm dead. I'm helpless. I'm foul. I'm naked. And no one wants to sing that. No one wants to acknowledge yet. And that, yet, if, if that's true... If this gospel is true and we've bought into it, it means a lot, but, but let me narrow in the implications for this to us for, for, th- for th- three things. The first it means no one can be counted out. Right, we as Christians don't count anyone out because if, if all it does, all it takes to be saved is to look at the tree, then everyone you know is one look away from embracing Jesus. Right, the family member that always asks you the same question and gives you the same hard time about being a Christian, they are one look away. That the neighbor or the friend or the co-worker that you think would never come to faith or would never be interested in Jesus, they're one look away. That that student you're sitting across from in class, the one you think is helpless, the one you think or you see cursing up a storm in geometry class is one look away. And so we don't count anyone out. There's no one too bad for the gospel. There's only people too good for the gospel. And so we come and we can, we can share with anyone because no one is counted out. But it also, secondly, means that, that the religious need the gospel most. That we in this room have, have gone to church our lives, or most of our lives, those of us that are Christians, we need the gospel more than anyone Because we're the ones that in Jesus' day were most likely to reject him, most likely to run from him. That as we go through this series of Jesus Listens, those who weren't religious, those who didn't go to church, those who objected to Jesus, it seemed, most ran to him. But it was the religious, those who went to church, those who read their Bible and prayed, who rejected him. And so we need the gospel more than anyone else because we are the ones who are most unlikely to come with empty hands. That We, we fill our hands with, with good works, thinking those things will make us acceptable before God. And yet this text says, no, look at the tree. And not just when you become a Christian, look at the tree. That's your life as a Christian, is the gospel, going back over and over and over again. It's there is where you're saved. You come with empty hands. And with those empty hands, though you should die, Jesus gives you life. So it means no one can be counted out. It means the religious, we religious, most need the gospel. But it also means all of us in this room, whether you're a Christian or a skeptic, it means we all should be saying, I need the gospel more than anyone else. More than anyone else, I need the gospel. Then maybe you're wondering, am I like Nicodemus? Am I approaching Jesus as a religious person? Well, maybe this morning is the morning that your eyes finally open. And like Nicodemus, who couldn't see Jesus for who he is, maybe this is finally the moment where you've seen Jesus as a religious advisor, you've seen him as an interesting moral teacher, and you'll finally see what he's offering to Nicodemus and to you and to me. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, we need the gospel, every one of us. And I began this morning by saying, I need the sermon, um, and this sermon, this sermon, this text scares me um, More than anything, it's because I know if my eyes don't stay gazed on the tree, I'll become convinced I'm better than others. I'm superior to others. I figured it out more than others. And that's why a life of following Jesus is a life of gazing at the cross, and that's the one place I find meaning and value and hope in this life. That's it. Nowhere else. So as we go through this series, Jesus will interact with a lot of people. And one of the sad things is we won't know the end of their story. I mean, the, the, the satisfied master of the feast last week, we don't know what happened to him after he drank the wine. Next week, we'll read about the woman at the well who, um, who Jesus spoke to. We don't know exactly what happened to her in the end, but we do know what happened with Nicodemus. At the end of the John's Gospel, after Jesus has been crucified, he's dead, his dead body is there. Nicodemus and a friend of Nicodemus takes Jesus' body. And John tells us Nicodemus put spices on Jesus' body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb. And Nicodemus cared for the dead, lifeless body of Jesus. And no doubt, three days later, when Jesus came out of his grave, Nicodemus finally understood what Jesus meant. That when Nicodemus tore off those linens, or when Jesus tore off the linens that Nicodemus had placed on him, when he wiped off the spices that Nicodemus had placed on him, when he walked out of the tomb that Nicodemus had placed him in, I bet for Nicodemus, finally he understood when Jesus looked at him and said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He finally got it. That Jesus was offering a life that doesn't end. A life free of religion. A life free of earning your status before God. A life of of looking at the tree. Of coming helpless And naked and needy and foul. And when we come like that, that moment is an opportunity for a brand new kind of life.